the cult of Gunther, but I think he's he's even better in this series than he was in previous ones. You know, don't you feel like a team should support its driver and give him confidence? I don't. I'm not saying I agree with this. Just to clarify, but he's like, if I never see a Russian again, I'll be happy. Like you know, when he's dealing with all those questions. That's what points in yeah. this season kind of means. It's like pizzas and beers at the end of yeah. the night. It's not like yeah, yes, yeah. we've defeated our, our nemesis McLaren. Katie George, Nate Saunders, Lawrence Edmondson, full disclosure, the guys are about to head out to Bahrain for testing. So we are pre-recording this before the entire series drops season five on Netflix. But thanks to Nate Saunders, we all got a embargoed copy. So we were able to watch the episodes early. I have to say, I felt really, really good about myself getting to watch it early. So I thank you, Nate, for the opportunity. Yeah, no worries. It's always nice, isn't it, when you can watch something before anyone mm-hmm. else does. You feel you feel quite special doing that. And I feel like I've I've messaged a friend of mine. I was like, "You're really gonna like the new series." They're like, "Tell me why." And I'm like, "Well, I can't." But <laughs> I I think I only messaged them to lord over the fact that I'd already seen it. So yeah, I definitely felt that. Yeah, it's a pretty powerful feeling, is it not, Lawrence? Yeah, I've been um, sending a few friends in the paddocks or other journalists who maybe haven't got access to it, sending them messages saying, "By the way, you're in this." episode you're in oh, i've done that i've done that too yeah, yeah so yeah, i feel like you're um, terrible in this scene <laughs> <laughs> but um, me and lawrence have the same thing where we both i was terrified watching it i was like there's going to be a horrible still of me and i've managed to avoid so far from the ones i've watched anyway i've avoided any embarrassing questions or you know facial expressions or anything like that yeah i think i'm in a background of one or two of the later episodes <laughs> Just kind of milling around that's what i do usually you know you don't want to be front and center do you so. no i've been i've paused it a couple of times lawrence when i've seen you i'm like there he is oh there he is which i find just so cool so remember if you're watching on youtube like this video leave us a comment and don't forget to subscribe to espn for more f1 content and if you're listening hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts let's just dive right in first five episodes i thoroughly enjoyed so I would just open it up to the two of you. Lawrence, you start. What were some of the biggest storylines that really piqued your interest? What did you look back on and think, oh, yeah, that was super fascinating when it all went down live? I think especially focusing on the early episodes, you remember how exciting the start of the season was. Because mm-hmm. with recency bias, you know, what we experienced at the end of last year with Max Verstappen running away with it by however many points it was and just consecutive victories for Red Bull, uh, it was quite easy to forget how competitive Ferrari were at the start of the year and how much hope there was around Ferrari and Charles Leclerc especially. So uh, that was really uh, brought to light. There's there's a whole episode on Mick Schumacher as well, which I, mm. I, I really enjoyed. I'm sure we'll get into the details of it. Uh, but I think that was very telling. Of course, it was a Haas episode. And with Drive to Survive, they do Haas just so well. Gunter Stein is they such do. a great character so um that's one to look forward to um but i think also uh, I, I enjoyed this season more than last year's i think and i i think having thought about why that was it's because last year there was so much expectation because 2021 was such an incredible year with such an incredible storyline that to try and do that justice in the netflix kind of environment the netflix narrative it is actually quite difficult Whereas mm-hmm. this season, uh, yeah, picking up some of the storylines which maybe you'd slightly forgot about and also reflecting on a few things and perhaps spending a little bit more time in the behind the scenes environment, which is where Netflix is so successful, the fly on the wall kind of um, situations. Uh, I think it did that quite well. So 
yeah, um, having not really enjoyed last year's, this year's I think was a step back in the right direction. Did you feel the same, Nate? Yeah, I did. And I, I completely agree with that. It's just a really good way of putting it. I think that this is exactly what Netflix was made for, is mm-hmm. honing in on five or six moments in what was, you know, an up and down season, had some great moments, had some, you know, it got, as the season went on, it got kind of more entertaining from a competitive point of view. Um, but it did it, it it did hone in on a few things really, really nicely. You know, I thought that the, the, the hope and expectation around Ferrari was great. You know, uh, I think that it was interesting. It also it kept reminding us, didn't it, how good the British Grand Prix was because it, it kind of keeps dipping yeah. in and out of that race because it's key to some of those storylines. Um, and it was kind of, it did, that Ferrari episode did kind of leave me a bit kind of frustrated because I was like, oh yeah, man, like it was so good. It was so good at the start. And um, a great advert for the Dolomites in Italy as well. That opening scene with Gunther and Mattia just like having a glass of wine like out in the hills in Italy, you know, it's not too far away from where my non is from. So I was like, I need to get back out there at some point um, and practice my terrible Italian. Um, but yeah, so I, I really liked that. I thought that the Schumacher episode was probably the best one of the five, Agreed. of the first five. Um, I think that's when you saw the most kind of candid stuff between driver, between Steiner, you, you know, there's bits, bits of Magnuson in there as well. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, one thing it always does grind me a bit with, um, Netflix is they've obviously recorded commentary later in, you know, down the line, which is Jack Nichols who works at the BBC. Jack, Jack's a great guy, but he's obviously, you know, he's recording that to, to help the narrative along. I totally get why, but for me, I'm just like, I know Jack wouldn't have been commentating on Mick Schumacher and 20th in, you know, in this race. So that from a journalistic point of view frustrates me, but I think if you're watching it and you don't quite know what's going on and what you're looking at, I totally get why that is the case. So that's just me being a really boring kind of guy that works in the sport. Um, so I think the Mick thing was great. And um, yeah, I think that to be honest, I didn't think Gunther could get kind of any more um, kind of wrapped up in like the cult of Gunther, but I think he's, he's even better in this series than he was in previous ones. I think he's as candid, you know, there's, he makes comments about, you know, there's the, he says, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying I agree with this just to clarify, but he's like, if I never see a Russian again, I'll be happy. Like, you know, when he's dealing with all those questions, you know, he says some pretty outrageous things about Mick, you know, which is what he did about Mazepin, you know, in the season before. So I think that he, he's so raw he adds so much to it um and same to be said of of christian as well you know christian kind of um up to no good um you know (laughs) but also i think actually was probably on the right side of that that meeting which i'm sure we'll get into more yeah Um, for sure but but christian doesn't he i mean even some of the comments when he's in the garage and you know he Mm -hmm. says stuff like oh it's so good to see a number one in the car and you know and they're they're on the car and they're already in bar you're like he never said that, goodness. No team principal walks into the garage and goes, it's good to see a number one. You know, and he's like, no, I'm just going to keep it He knows he's got the live microphone there. And he's like, yeah. right, this is a comment that's going to get into Netflix. This is, you know. And so at times, um, it's a, or maybe he is like that. And, you know, it's just the way that team principal's acting. No, yeah. Christian, no, I, I think Christian is always 100% sure that yeah, he knows the camera. I mean, they know the cameras are there anyway, don't they? But I think he's got like a sixth sense for that. He must be like the camera's right he over there. He for sure does. Looking. Yeah. He, yeah. He's very he's very good at it, um, which you need. You need savvy people like that, I feel like, to spin a season forward. And he does his job well. I agree with you guys. I enjoyed season four tremendously. I, I thought there were a couple gripes that I had, and I mentioned that last week, just with felt like we saw the same races over and over again. This year or this season, I, I thought has been really well done. So I, I want to hit you guys with a couple questions. Uh, you guys mentioned the Mick episode. So that's episode four, like father, like son. 
And it obviously goes through the struggles that Mick has throughout the season, a couple of his massive wrecks that were very expensive. And we know for a team like Haas, they just don't have an outrageous budget to turn to. I did find it really interesting, though, when Gunther went out and he had an interview with Sky Germany and the Germans' questions were interesting where he said, you know, don't you feel like a team should support its driver and give him confidence? And so it, it made me feel like, well, maybe the narrative in Germany is is different in terms of how they're covering Mick as compared to, you know, what's been portrayed from Haas's standpoint of like, this guy's not getting us points and he's costing us a lot of money. So maybe we need to contemplate, you know, moving on. From your all's vantage point, when all this was going down, did you feel like there was a different narrative happening in Germany as compared to how they were, you know, covering Mick and the Schumacher family? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you got to remember, Mick was the the big hope for Germany as well going mm-hmm. forward. Uh, Seb, of course, was on the grid as well last year, but it was clear it was coming towards the end of his career. And then we found out that it was the last season of his career. So there was so much on Mick to basically fill those boots, become the next big German hope going forward. And his uncle, Ralph Schumacher, is one of the uh, commentary team on Sky Sports Germany and therefore, I think, spends quite a lot of time um, kind of promoting his his nephew, as, as you as you would, right, in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, there's so much love for the Schumacher name in Germany as well. So there were all these things. I think it is it, it is a very different narrative that you get. And um, in, in the UK and in, in the US, I actually think, I mean, people will disagree with this, I'm sure, but I think it's a little bit more balanced. Uh, I'm sure lots of people will say, if you listen to Sky Sports, they're big fans of Lewis and the rest of it. And perhaps there's some truth to that. But I think it is a little bit more balanced. Whereas if you go to um, you know some countries or you talk to some journalists from countries, we have a very good friend who's a Danish journalist, a guy called Jonas Huttel, and he really is on Kevin Magnusson watch throughout the yeah. weekend. <laughs> to the point that if, if you have any question about what has happened at Haas during the weekend... There's only one man you go to in the media center because Jonas is going to know the answer. So, and, and they can be um, super specific as well, can't they? Like, what happened to him? Turn seven on lap eighteen, and he'll be like, "Oh, this happened straight away." Like, it's like I, you know, I know. Wow. Yeah, and, and there's no shame in that because for his audience, the interest is is yeah. Kevin. You know, they want to know what's going on with Kevin. Uh, you know, especially the story last year, which was uh, fantastic and made up a bit of I think episode one so this year mm-hmm. of, of Try to Survive. Um, so. Yeah, I, I think that that's entirely normal. But that's a really good observation, Katie, that um, uh, that that interview kind of went that way. And then also Gunter's reaction to it. Yeah. Uh, of course, he's, you know, I mean, he's got a very holistic approach. But the, the, the thing at that stage as well was that it was clear, um, I mean, at Baku, but actually before that, that they'd already fallen out of love with Mick. You know, he had his two big accidents in Saudi and Monaco. And um, there's a the, the, the great quote uh, from Gene where he's like, he said, um, you know, that's dead man walking territory. And you're like, bloody hell, you know, that's mm. that's um serious in Monaco. They were already saying it mm-hmm. that like Mick was was on his way out. So um that's again, look, this is what Netflix does really well. It opens up the door slightly because when we were asking Gunter those questions at that time of year, he was like, Well, if Mick performs well enough, he's got the seat next year. You know, sure. Nico Holkenberg had barely been talked about at that stage. Um, as a potential replacement so that's where um, it's yeah it's really good at opening the door slightly showing you what was really going on at that time I I will say one of my favorite quotes (laughs) lines from it is with Gunther says you know he's so blanking slow he doesn't need to break which is just like oh my gosh like the fact that that's being said but I I think that that obviously shows you kind of where they were at Nate 
Yeah, and to be honest with you, I think it, it is interesting to see that veil pull back because mm-hmm. I think that, I think one of the re- one of the things that was was definitely happening with the um, the House and Schumacher situation, as Lawrence has alluded to, there people kind of write around what your audience is. But I think Mick and his manager were probably saying one thing to the German press and being much more open, probably briefing them a bit more off record, like, "Hey, look, we actually think we're getting a, you know a rough deal here," whereas. Haas and the team were probably coming to guys like myself and saying, well, actually, you know, we think it's this way around and stuff. And you're like, okay, well, you know, for, for me, I'm not going to get that candid answer from Mick. So, you know, you, you end up thinking, okay, well, you, you try and find out, you know, what the truth is. So it was interesting, you know, I think there was a lot of briefing back and forth and that for anybody listening who doesn't know what I mean, that's kind of the lifeblood of journalism, isn't it? Is one person tells a journalist something and you're like, okay, that's interesting, but clearly there's two sides to this story. I think what was, what was clear from, um, first couple of races really as soon as kevin got into that car or the other car and was as competitive as he was i think that that's actually i think that's the key part of the equation is that i think there was already some frustrations last year with with maybe not so much mick and i think i've touched on this before but kind of the environment around mick we mentioned about his his manager before sabine kem who was michael's manager nothing against her because she's you know she seems you know very nice to deal with but i think that she's she treated being mixed manager in the same way that she treated being Michael's manager and Haas were like, well, actually this is just a kid who's not actually won any races, you know, at that, you know, until Silverson hadn't actually scored any points. So I think that had grated at the team. Then Kevin came in, got all those great results while Mick was destroying the car. You know, they had shortage of parts and stuff like that. And it's an unforgiving business. And that's a pretty, I'm not saying an unforgiving team, but it's a team where you can't, you can't afford to be sentimental. You, you can't be like, oh, well, he's, you know, his surname Schumacher. So I think that um, it was clear pretty early on that, you know, that Mick was in trouble. I think, and this is one of the things where you can't verify it, but I'm pretty sure that early in the season, there was an attempt to have a meeting between Gunther and Mick. And it depends on who you, 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 you hear different sides. Either, either Mick was late for the meeting or Mick didn't show for the meeting. Either way, it rubbed just the one person in the paddock you probably don't want to do that to is to Gunther because he's a very traditional kind of old school guy. Mm-hmm. And he's like, look, I set this meeting up so we can talk. And if you can't even be bothered to show up on time, you know, what that's a problem. So I think things like that on their own were probably fine. But if you're putting them all together and he's not scoring points, then I think it's it's kind of a recipe for not disaster, but it's a recipe for losing well, or dead man walking territory, as, mm-hmm. <laughs> as, 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 uh, as Lawrence pointed out that Gene said. Um, but it was it was fascinating because Gunther it shows you how good Gunther's poker face is because we were asking him, as Lawrence mentioned then, we were asking him about Hulkenberg, we were asking him about Ricardo, we were asking him about all these things, and they're all mentioned in this, you know, and, and it seems to suggest it was all in Silverstone that started talking about it, mm-hmm. which is obviously kind of mid-season, maybe just before mid-season. So um, yeah, it was all everything was kind of I guess cascading away from Schumacher before we really realized that was the case. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code FIRSTTAKE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more, more than, than ever. ever. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to gamble responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. This U.S. promotional offer not available in D.C., Mississippi, North Carolina, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369 for New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. For Massachusetts, 1-800-327-5050. For Iowa, 1-800-BETS-OFF. For Puerto Rico, 1-800-981-0023. For West Virginia, 
visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. First bet offer for new customers only, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Well, you mentioned Daniel Ricardo. There is a line where he's asked if they would consider bringing mm. Ricardo in for that seat. And what was the line? He's asking for effing $10 million. Effing $10 million. yeah. And apparently, so again, this is where it's interesting what you hear from the panic. So I think it was the Hungarian Grand Prix weekend, but mm. ahead of that race, Gunther messaged Daniel um, to just kind of say, hey, you know, what's what's Let's your talk. situation for next year? And the story goes that either, either so again, this is where you, you kind of hear different takes from different people. Either Ricardo said to him, look, just talk to my my team. He's represented by CAA and he's got agents and stuff like that. Or Ricardo completely blanked him and didn't reply to the message, which again, the one person you don't do that to in the paddock probably, I mean, you probably don't do that to anyone in the paddock, but Gunther Steiner probably takes that very, very personally. And when Ricardo was clearly in the market for quite a bit of money anyway, and I don't think his heart was in the right place. I think that that kind of immediately drew the line under that. But that would have been, I was excited about that. So when Ricardo left McLaren, I was like, if he goes to Haas next year, imagine that. Netflix, Gunther, Daniel. But it's a shame that it didn't really go anywhere. Well, as uh, Mattia Bonotto so perfectly coined, Gunther Steiner is uh, the protagonist of Drive to Survive. He is the leading man. And I have to be honest, I was sad when we opened up the season with episode one, and it's Gunther and it's Mattia and this cute little buggy, by the way, going through the Dolomites to a vineyard that I, I believe Mattia owns. But it made me sad thinking, gosh, we're not going to have a world with Mattia in it moving forward. Like I just, as a fan really always enjoyed watching him, listening to him. And then we get into episode three, which is matter of principle where they kind of dive into Ferrari struggles. Well, triumphs in the beginning, but then quick struggles with some of the strategy. I wish Lawrence that that one conversation where they kind of screwed Charles Leclerc by not bringing him in to change his tires where he's kind of pointing in Charles face. Remember that blew up in that point of the season when it happened. And didn't they say afterwards, well, it was a happy conversation or something. It was a friendly (laughs) conversation. It's like, I've never had a friendly conversation with somebody wagging their finger in my face, (laughs) but I I wish that was a moment where we had the mics on and maybe they did. And they just decided, you know what, this is too close to home, but I kind of wish we got to see a little bit more, behind the curtains more so than we did in that Ferrari episode. How'd you feel, Lawrence? Yeah, I think I agree with that. Um, I think it was very much a PR managed kind of episode, wasn't it? Whereas mm-hmm. perhaps has give uh, Netflix more freedom to do what they want at the end of it. Because as we mentioned before, in, in the last episode of this podcast, um, the teams do get some say over, over what goes out at the end of it, which kind of takes some of, it some of away from it being a true documentary and more of a kind of PR exercise, but still, but I think the one thing that came away from that Ferrari episode and, and Mattia is that he is a very, very nice and calm individual, isn't he? He's, mm-hmm. he's 
really got a certain way of managing and um you know it was often well this is something to learn this is something to learn from the mistakes we're making but you can also look at that and start to understand why ferrari maybe felt that he wasn't the right man for the job because even though he consistently said they had something to learn and they certainly did from those situations they never really put those learnings into practice and as a result the mistakes kept happening so um, there was also in, in, in that episode, it was before the race um, and they were talking about uh, strategy and how important it would be. And Mattia kind of goes, um, we will have to bite uh, and then I'm counting on you. But he says it in this very quiet, monotone <laughs> yeah. voice. And you're like, yeah. come on, this is not like the this is not the dressing room kind of like it's like, like he and he's, it's like he's kind of whispering it, isn't it? He's like he's kind <laughs> yeah. of. He doesn't want the drivers to actually hear that. He's like, okay, I've said it, but I don't, I don't want need them and, to hear. And, it. And, and F one is different to you know other sports like that. It's not, it's not quite the same as a as a football dressing room. But still, yeah, you can understand why maybe questions were being asked. Is is this guy is clearly a very talented engineer, uh, clearly a very calming influence, and a very uh, very good at leading the team in in certain mm-hmm. directions. But is he the man who's actually going to stand up, or the person who's going to stand up? and motivate them in the right way and then also make the really tough decisions when they need to because in that race you know um in in the break uh so the red flag break uh mm-hmm. red bull are talking about how well ferrari are going to pr- prioritize charles aren't they they're going to prioritize charles maybe they'll sacrifice carlos and then the reality is that ferrari actually do the opposite they prioritize carlos i think by mistake sure in reality. but um but they still did that and then at the end of it red bull can't quite believe how lucky they've been and you know, and that really was the story of so many races this year. And so um, yeah, I think that's the side of Mattia, which um unfortunately maybe got a bit a bit exposed. And again, I think you know it helps to cast it in a light now that we know that he's gone. And of course, when he's doing most of the well, when he's doing all of those interviews, I think he doesn't know that he's going to leave at the end of the year, apart from maybe the very ones at the end of the series. And so um, yeah, it does cast it in a slightly different light and, and maybe a bit of an understanding as to why. Ferrari went the way they did with the decision. Yeah. Speaking of sides being exposed, episode two follows Mercedes and the episode's called Bounce Back, which I think is a clever play on words, obviously, because they had such porpoising issues early on, but they did kind of get their stuff together and bounce back towards the latter part of the season. That's not a, a version of Toto Wolf that I'm used to seeing, right? Obviously, I think F1 and the personalities in it were gifted with the fact that they're pretty vulnerable in certain situations. Toto Wolf's used to having success at the highest level. Now, obviously, they've put together a car that, you know, isn't performing to the best of its ability and they're struggling. And so you can obviously see that bubbling of frustration. And Nate, you alluded to the team principal meeting where things get super heated and Toto Wolf's yelling. Um, Christian Horner, of course, has a, a pretty great line in there, which I'm sure he knew. I'm sure all of them knew that the cameras were in there. But what did you kind of make of Toto Wolf's reaction and how he handled the struggles that were for Mercedes a season ago? And, and did you get that kind of sense from him, you guys, when you were around him during that time last season? I think Toto, we've talked haven't we, before about the different management styles between mm-hmm. Red Bull and Mercedes. But I think that fundamentally one of the reasons that Horner and Wolf are so successful is the way they, I think better than any other team principal will defend their team's kind of position. And you see that in that meeting really well, you know, Toto's kind of coming in there and saying, we need, you know, for safety, because it was the race after Lewis had basically got out of the car and 
had all the back issues and stuff. And yeah, you're right. Horner's like, well, you should just fix your car, you know, which is a bit cheeky to say, but at the same time, you can totally understand it from Horner's perspective because he'd be like, okay, it's convenient that now this was, this was what Red Bull were thinking at the time is that it was convenient now that, you know, now you're saying that these, you know, the, the car's not safe because it's bouncing around. We've all managed to fix you, the issues you haven't. Um, at the same time, Mercedes, you can totally understand their point of view. They're like, well, look, if our driver's getting out of the car and he can barely stand up, something has to be done about it. But because of the situation between those two teams over the last few years and the animosity between those two guys, it's completely different. You know, the context is gone. Um, and I thought it was great. I mean, that I, I'm so glad that bit was in the episode because I, I was in Canada for the race and speaking to Christian on the Sunday before he started the the meeting he he was his sorry his post race debrief he was already talking to a couple of journalists from um british newspapers um came in and he was like i just really hope i really hope netflix does show what we you know this meeting we had the other day here because he said he was like i couldn't believe and i thought i, I was like you know you always take that with a pinch of salt you think okay well it could just be christian being christian it you know it could not be as bad as it was um, but you can see the, the faces of the other team bosses through that. You know, they're just kind of like, wow, this is happening. And Domenicali's sitting there like, I don't know what to do. But I think it was great because I think that shows you that for all of their talk, those two guys will kind of go toe-to-toe with each other like that in that situation, which I feel I like the respect. roles were reversed too. Yeah. and, and Horner thing would also, be done. Yeah. And, and Horner does allude to that as well, doesn't he? I forget the exact wording of it, but he says, you know, when you've created a great car for so long and then you don't, suddenly you know anxiety and doubt creeps in and it's actually the way he said that was the first time i ever thought that he's actually he showed sort of a degree of empathy for toto's situation he wasn't kind of lording that over him at that point he was like no you know you can end up doubting yourself you can end up doing that and then there's like i can't remember exactly what he says straight after that but it's then it's like he's back to like the there's like the smile at the you know it's smile in the corner of his Mm -hmm. mouth and stuff so you know he's enjoying the situation and i think he's trying to not enjoy it enough that pisses toto off but um yeah i to be honest with you i could watch a whole show of just those two guys in a, oh, lo- like locked in a room together i could also watch just going back to what we talked about before i could also watch a whole show of matir and gunther just driving around italy in a tiny car so i think those two shows on their own if it just went between those two things you could have like the happiness of of gunther and matir and then the tension and the like the unbearable kind of arguments between toto and, and christian i think that alone would be a show that does does just amazing ratings because it's just really cool to see. Because um, again, when we when we ask them questions about this, often you know they're trying to play it down or they're trying to shift the blame onto the other guy. Robert Half research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Do you think you could watch uh, a spinoff of Otmar Safnauer and Zach Brown, Lawrence? (laughs) Speaking Um, French to himself in the car. (laughs) Yeah, as long as it isn't Otmar doing the ironing, I think that was, there is a man who has never ironed a shirt until... Yeah, I was going to say, I don't iron much, but I know that that's not how you iron a a shirt like that. Um, Yeah, and then he kind of pulls it off, he's like, oh, pulls off the ironing board, he's like, oh no, that's that's no good, I have to do that again. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that... So that's episode five, isn't it? I, I feel like mm-hmm. that episode and bit of a spoiler alert here for anyone who hasn't made it on six, but those 
five and six are together and it's all about the driver mm-hmm. market and how Oscar Piastri goes from uh, Alpine to McLaren. And that was uh, genuinely a big deal in the paddock. That was, and it created a lot of tension between those two teams and I think a lot of animosity between those two people, Zach Brown and Otmar Safnau. But beforehand, when they're trying to build it up, and this is like classic Netflix stuff, when they're trying to build it up with, it's the French Grand Prix and McLaren and Alpine going tied on points. No one cares. No one was talking about yeah, that. Yeah, they yes, don't need to do that. I, don't, I wish they didn't do that because it, it just is unnecessary. Yeah. yeah, but like, and then, you know, yeah, that that's it. So that kind of stuff was, I think, going too far. And it was really when, you know, when it kicked off around Hungary, which I felt was, pretty pretty well dealt with there were some great fernando alonso quotes who sets the scene right from the very start by saying that he's part of the dark side and he's going to play up mm-hmm. to that and then you know he he knows exactly what he's doing fernando you know he's, he's great at kind of building this up and you know he does it with tongue-in-cheek and a kind of smile knowing that um i think a lot of the media kind of like to portray him that way anyway so he's just going to lean into it um <laughs> so yeah I, you know that 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 stuff was was great but i feel like you know, more time spent on the the real nitty gritty of how it all kind of fell apart and getting um yeah some some of the kind of live mic stuff they got later in the series. That's um that's good. What's yeah, what's not so good is trying to build up, you know, this on track rivalry when at the end of it, I think it's summed up after the Hungarian Grand Prix where Alan Permain says to Kyron Pilbone on the um on the Alpine pit wall, great. Now we can go for a pizza because we score points. Like that's what points at yeah. mid season kind of means. It's like pizzas and beers at the end of yeah. the night. It's not like, yeah, yes, yeah. we've defeated our, our nemesis McLaren. Um, so yeah, I think that's where like Netflix sometimes gets a bit frustrating and tedious when they're kind of building up that stuff. But which I think yeah. is fair. Yeah. And I totally get why they do it, but it, it, especially I think, and this is where for Lawrence and I working in it every day, you just, you, you go in with a bit more of a cynical, kind of a cynical take on it mm-hmm. i love that i love that alonzo has kind of led into that in this in this episode mm-hmm. i loved as well i think it's it's right at the end of the episode when um they've obviously announced he's, he's left the team i mean that whole sequence is great because you see you you know you see them giving him that birthday cake for 41 you know not miles trying so hard to kind of be nice he's like uh 41 for number 14 and fernando's like yep yeah it's good good numbers <laughs> and it's, but you can see on his face like he's clearly already spoken to Lawrence Stroll at that point he's clearly mm-hmm. and again we've seen this with Alonso time and time again in his career where he's you know there's there's always I, th- I think Fernando's always playing a long game but he's also got a few short games going on as well um and then they have that that talk on the on the on the balcony and I think what Otmar yeah. is saying to him is I'll give you the contract today or tomorrow and Fernando's like well <clears throat> I'll sign it tomorrow. I'll sign it tomorrow. I think is what he's saying. Or he's like, "What about tomorrow?" And we know, of course, he didn't sign it in Hungary. And he told the team, "Look, I'll sign it, you know, in the break." And then that evening is is when it sounds like he signed the Aston Martin deal. Um, and so I just thought that knowing that about Fernando, and then seeing the way he he was with Otmar there was really interesting. And there's that great line when he's talking to the camera when he's like, he's like, "Yep, bye bye. I'm the bad guy." And I think that he's. He has embraced it, and I think it's a good thing to embrace because you know it, it it suits him very well. He's very good at that yes. kind of devious, that kind of devious but kind of cool bad guy. You know, he'd he'd make like a good Bond villain. You know, he's he's scheming, <laughs> he but on 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 one on one point, you're like, I kind of like this guy. You know, he's kind of cool. He's kind of suave and sophisticated, but at the same time, like his intentions, you never know what they are. So I think he's I think he's played that perfectly, um, and he's kind of joined a great team for that. You know, I think mm-hmm. Aston Martin, mm-hmm. Lawrence Stroll, it's kind of you know, one of the dark. Now that now that Seb's gone from that team, I think it is kind of a dark side team, as well. So um, I will. I'll never 
fault a driver for securing their future and doing what they think is best for them and their family. You you could say that about all kinds of different athletes. I do find it fascinating that Alpine was so blindsided by Fernando obviously leaving and then obviously the the debacle that was Oscar Piastri. I know it's a shrewd business. I know that there's ruthlessness to this. Who do you fault more? Alpine for not having any idea that either of these things were coming or just the fact that, you know what, individuals do what individuals have to do? Like, how do you guys see it in this world? I think Alpine uh, completely yeah, it. So. Yeah. Uh, and it, so it's not really fair to blame it on Otmar. Otmar was kind of um, the firefighter in that situation. Look, this deals were, you know, these deals were put in place by, um, b- b- before Otmar kind of arrived on the scene. So, yeah, the fact that Piastri didn't have a clear contract whereby he was kind of forbidden from talking to other people on the grid, uh, had a contract locked in for the following year, no matter what, no matter where Alpine chose to put him, uh, would have been, seems to me like, you know, the very basics of of dealing with a young driver. Uh, so I think Alpine got, got caught there, maybe trusting him a bit too much. I don't know. But if anything, I think it's just being a bit sloppy, really, behind the scenes. Um, and then with Fernando, well, I don't think I don't really blame Alpine for the Fernando situation because you know they gave him a car that progressed on the previous year. Um, they didn't really do a huge amount. Okay, the car was a little bit unreliable, but you get that at teams, you know, especially teams which are trying to push the limits. So, um, yeah, with the Fernando situation, I think it is just one of those situations. If you have Fernando in your team and his contract's coming to an end, you never make any assumptions that you've got him until you've got it's signed on a piece of paper and uh yeah there's that moment in in episode five where um uh where uh fernando's going up to one of the offices in, in alpine and they've got the mic on on otmar and he's like yeah i might sign today he might sign tomorrow and then you know at that point having watching it now with the benefit of hindsight he's already probably signed an aston martin contract or is on the verge of doing mm-hmm. so um, so it's great. And then just before the race, they have Otmar talking to Lauren Rossi uh, via his kind of iPhone earbuds. And he's talking about how, yeah, there's been a meeting and this kind of stuff. So at that point, it twigs for Otmar. Oh, God, we've got a situation whereby Fernando could well be leaving. And then I bet, you know, that was probably the first time when they were seriously considering, right, what's our Oscar Piastri contract looking like for, um, for getting him in the Alpine? Because prior to that, they've been trying to manoeuvre him into a Williams seat. So um, yeah, it all happened very quickly for them, and uh, triggered by by Fernando. But I don't, I don't blame Otmar, and I think he kind of comes out quite well from. This I agree. You know, he's, he's quite a, he is a very engaging and kind of um, friendly character, and I think that kind of comes across well. So I think that he learned a lot of lessons during that period, but they weren't from mistakes of his own making. It was from previous uh, management decisions at Alpine. I agree he comes off well, but I felt so bad when on that Sunday evening they show him going to that BWT event and they're all like, oh, Otmar, you're our hero. You're our... And you know that at the same time, Aston Martin, were, you know, were preparing for this press release that went out the following morning. It's, it kind of had a, not to overplay it too much, but it had like a Shakespearean kind of drama element to it where he had no idea and he's being all jovial and probably thinking, okay, things are okay, I think. Um, yeah, I think just on that, on that point, I think... Um, I think Mercedes will have a similar situation with this whenever whenever Lewis is kind of close to to leaving and they're not sure if he will. Because you always have that conundrum in Formula One. If you have a great driver, you're like, we want to keep the great driver here, but you've got to look at the future as well. And I think Alpine 
kind of second guess themselves. Like, yeah, we do have one of the best drivers of this era, but we also have, I thought the great bit in that episode that was actually kind of a small kind of not throwaway bit, but it was, you know, a very quick interview is Horner saying how much he regrets that Red Bull didn't get Piastri. And he said, you know, this guy's could be the next Verstappen. And I think that that is a really interesting take from, you know, from, from somebody as who's, who's worked with so many great drivers to say that. And that does make you wonder, you know, if this, if, if Piastri is as good as everyone says he is, and you know everyone I've spoken to who knows his career say, yeah, this guy is really, really good. You, you can you can understand the situa- situation they're in. So they're like, right, we've got to keep Oscar here, but how do you get rid of Fernando Alonso and you know keep the team on the good path that it's on? You know, you don't want to throw Piastri into that situation. Um, but it was a complete mess from them last year. So it's a great example of how not to <laughs> how not to elevate a young driver to uh, to your team. Um, I mean, what about you, Katie? From from the outside and looking at that show, what mm-hmm. did you make of uh, that whole situation? Because I think that it's interesting. I, I haven't seen six yet. I, I will get to that, but um, I'm interested to see how Piastri comes off because I felt I felt for Piastri in a way because before he'd even driven a Formula One car, he'd had this whole summer where the whole news cycle was just about him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he had, he's, he's not even raced yet. You know, he's which probably- people probably have drawn conclusions or perceptions about him yeah, as an definitely. individual before he even races, which I, I think is a very good point from the outside. I think I, I just, I fault Alpine to a degree, like, gosh, you had to have seen it coming, but then mm. at the same time, it's hard to fault them because individuals, I think do so many things behind the scenes, as you guys have both mentioned, like these deals and conversations are going on without other people knowing. And so Fernando Alonso, <laughs> I kind of want to say like, you know, fool me once, shame on me, or, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on Like Alpine kind of, you know what you were dealing with. Like he's done this before. So that's a really good point. I didn't feel like that was shocking. Number one, Uh, the Piastri thing I thought was like, it's just a total debacle, but I do think that Alpine feels good about where they are and they, you know, are getting Pierre Gasly, which I, I do think that Pierre could be a star. Um, so I don't know. I just think it was so fascinating. Um, so I was curious what you guys thought on the ground, but it, it just did appear like, you know, these are two guys who made really shrewd kind of selfish moves for themselves. And you wonder where the loyalty is, but at the same time, mm. I don't know if the end all be all is loyalty. Um, so like, you know, I think when we get in, go ahead, Lawrence. No, I was gonna say, it's a really interesting point because if you look at Fernando's career, uh, none of it's been based <laughs> on loyalty. And no. he's a two-time world champion. If you look at Lewis Hamilton's career, it's almost entirely been based on loyalty and he's a seven-time world champion. So obviously it depends on who you're loyal to and and the bridges you build and stuff like that. But uh, I think it's, it's very interesting because uh, the nature, I think, of a lot of these drivers is to be very selfish. At mm-hmm. some stages in the career, they all have to be, you know, they, they it's no good helping out your teammate, um, you know, early in the season because you're only going to fall more points behind and then, at some point the team's going to start backing your teammate and not you. And then you need to start worrying about, you know, your contract the following year. So um, you can understand why they are selfish, but it, it is interesting to look at different drivers and different career trajectories. But yeah, to um, from Alpine's perspective, to not s- suspect that Fernando would be selfish is to basically <laughs> ignore all of Fernando Alonso's career to that point. Yeah, yeah. I think that if if I was... Sorry, Katie. No, go ahead. Um, I think if I was if I was on my staff now and I didn't get a straight answer at that point from Fernando, I'd have been on the Aren't phone you to thinking, Lauren Rossi. He's like, doing something we, behind our backs. I'd have been like, look, we have to really, we have to make sure we don't leave this paddock without 
a yes or no from him. We can't end up doing this because you know the story went that you know we spoke about it in, in the summer. From everything we understand, is that following day Fernando just kind of <laughs> went off to the Greek islands on a, on a yacht and was mm-hmm. kind of wasn't answering his phone. Otmar, people at Alpine are trying to call him. We had a there was a press conference with with Otmar where he said, "Yeah, I can't. You know, I haven't spoken to Fernando. We can't get hold of him." And you just think, how you know that is such a crazy situation. And then again, to lead into this bad guy thing of Fernando. I love the fact that he then just waltzed back into the paddock in Belgium. I was like, Hey guys, how you doing? You know? And I, I don't think he had much shame about doing that. And why would he? Cause you know, he's like you said, you know, he's extended his career probably further with Aston Martin. They would have done with Alpine. Um, kind of gutted. They didn't go on that yacht with him. That would have been great. His phone just going off in the background. It's kind of like a scene from succession or something, you know, that, that yacht yeah. episode where they're all on the yacht and it's, it's all foreboding and it's all very doom. Like doom is, is in the air. It was Otmar that said he was on a yacht. And then on Fernando's Instagram, he was in That's right, yeah. at the cart track. So it almost seemed like Otmar didn't, I didn't know the exact truth, whether he was on the yacht one day and then Oviedo the next, but it seems like even Otmar had no idea where his, where his driver was. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's really great. But you know, that, isn't that fantastic? We just spent the last like 10 minutes talking about how mm. great that one little section of, of, of the uh, episode is, but um, that's the kind of box office stuff that, Fernando brings and you got to remember this is a sport as well you know yeah if, yeah if a driver wants to go and do it his way and kind of look back at his career and have no regrets at the end of it which I'm pretty sure is how Fernando will feel at the end of all this um then so be it you know yeah mm. uh, I thought it was funny when he comes back into the paddock and uh I forget who came up to him and was just like well you've uh you've caused a lot of drama you you, you you've uh you've shook things up and he's like blame Seb and just walked off <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's true no, isn't it as well if seb if seb hadn't retired it probably it would have been a fairly dull i mean ricardo probably would, would have still opened the door for piastri i guess um mm-hmm. but yeah the seb thing really did blow everything wide open on piastri i think the one the one big criticism i have of this series and it's purely just because of i think how they framed it i could not and i i don't know how you guys feel about this it took me out of the moment when they're showing piastri they're doing this montage you have a very slender kind of slightly built f1 driver and they're doing a montage with him and he's lifting very very light weights in the gym you know and i was like i get it like you're trying to show him working out but show him on the treadmill or show him show him running you know you don't really i know f1 drivers you know they're 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 very very fit they're way fitter than i am but it was just a weird visual to see like you know they were showing that that thing at the end and he's lifting you know very very like i think it was like one um bar on each side it just was a funny. It just took me out of the moment for a sec. I was like, "Oh yeah, this is this is a bit." It's frankly, yeah, they they bit. wanted a really dramatic ending, and the shots yeah. didn't really line up. And that made me just think, like, okay, clearly they didn't have a lot of time with Oscar, and they just don't have like a lot of footage of him, so they just used what they did. But Lawrence, you you mentioned that episode six kind of puts a bow tie on all this, and episode six is nice guys finish last. Um, so that kind of goes into Daniel Ricardo's future as well as Piastri making the move to McLaren. What obviously Alpine is going to do from there. Episode seven is titled The Hot Seat. That goes into Checo Perez and the drama that was at the Monaco Grand Prix and his accident during qualifying, uh, which should certainly be fascinating. Episode eight's Alpha Male uh, with Yuki Tsunoda and Pierre Gasly at that point, obviously making the move. So who's going to move into that seat at AlphaTari? And then episode nine, uh, I think, is just going to be electric because it's titled Over the Limit and it obviously gets into the accusations uh, that Red Bull um, went over the budget cap. And then I th- I'm sure episode 10 just kind of puts a bow on everything. So we've got a lot certainly to break down from the last five episodes, and we're going to do that next week. But 
Curiously, you guys mentioned just the different personalities. And I think Fernando Alonso certainly is one of those. You know, we're not going to have Daniel Ricardo on the grid, you know, this coming season. And I have just been watching Full Swing, which is kind of it's by the same uh, creators of Drive to Survive, but it's touring around and following PGA Tour and its golfers. And I do think it's very good. I do think that the personality of the subjects is missing, um, to put it lightly. And Daniel Ricardo, as we know, is one of the best personalities in this sport. And so do you think that Drive to Survive will suffer moving forward without him as one of you know the main subjects that we get to hear from and see from? I think so. I think, I think it will take an episode out of, you know, they have a formula now with Drive to Survive. Mm-hmm. And one of those episodes, at least sometimes too, is based around Daniel because he is just so good. But Daniel is unique. You know, you're not going to replace him. One of the other drivers is not going to fill the role of Daniel Ricciardo. But that's not to say there aren't other good stories out there they can they can go after. I mean, you know, there were a number of things which um, they barely touched on uh, this year. One was the Mazepin situation, which, mm-hmm. as Nate mentioned, Gunter gives a kind of throwaway comment, but they don't go into any detail on it. I think that could be an episode in itself. If it if they were you know, if it was a serious documentary, they would certainly have um, covered the Saudi Arabia missile attack uh, and during Friday practice of that race. Doesn't even get a mention, not even, you know, mm-hmm. in the Mick episode, it's almost like Saudi Arabia is a lovely place. Here's everyone laughing in the paddock. Okay. I can tell you from experience that wasn't the case when we were there. So I, I think there's, there's there's still plenty of stuff for them to to, to go to the world to uh, over a season. But I think they'll just lose that you know, that one Daniel Ricciardo episode. Plus, there's always these little filler bits, aren't they? Like, if you notice every time they go to the start of a race weekend, it's drivers fooling around and all that kind of stuff. And I'd say a good kind of six times out of 10, Daniel Ricciardo's involved, like signing the back of someone's shirt or whatever. Um, So, yeah, I I, I feel like that, that that's where they'll lose it. But I don't think it doesn't mean you can't have a series. I just think sure. it's, it's... Yeah, they're not also, lacking for content. Also, he's going to be around next year. And if Red Bull turns into a you know spicy hotbed of of distrust between the drivers, I'm sure we'll have a thing or two to say. Yeah, I think I think that I mean, whenever he's in the paddock, those Netflix cameras are just going to be on him, aren't they? Like, you know, like like kind of bees to honey almost. I think, but I think it's going to be interesting to see though the the um the way Netflix fills that gap because I don't think there is a like for like comparison, as Lawrence said. And I think the danger you get is you either have one driver who sits there and thinks, okay, I need to, I need to be the new Danny Rick or, and you know, they do it kind of falsely. And I think that there are a few people on the, on the, in the grid, Katie, to, to go to your golfing point that maybe aren't so great, you know, aren't so compelling characters. And the fact is, is that Netflix hasn't really needed to, de- to deal with them because the ones they have dealt with have been great. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when they have to kind of dig into some of the, some of the other characters there that maybe, you know, maybe don't give you such great quotes, maybe aren't such great fun to be on camera with. Um, I think it was in our show notes. I'll I'll give her a shout out, but Emily Selleck wrote in the New York Post about um, Netflix looking for Pierre Gasly to be the guy to kind of step up. You can kind of see that, but I think Gasly's a very, very different personality to Ricardo. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I don't think he's got the same. I mean, he's, he's, he's not got the same sense of humor. He just doesn't have it. You know, he, you know, he tries, I think he tries to, he tries to kind of, have a laugh and a joke when he can, but he's very, very different to Ricardo. Ricardo always feels pretty natural. I think a lot of the other drivers you see when they're trying to be funny, it is trying to be funny. And mm-hmm. I think that that's where it might become it might become difficult. But again, like it's a great opportunity for a young driver to kind of be themselves. I think one of the 
one of the characters I really hope is featured more and more just because he's f- absolutely fantastic is Sonoda because he does not act like anyone else. He just is completely who he is. And he's, I mean, he, you know, he might not be in Formula One much longer because, you know, his results haven't been there. But he's a great guy who I think in the next series of Drive to Survive, assuming he gets to stay for another season beyond that, um, yeah, he could really benefit. So so we'll see. But I think it'll be a big loss. And um, But like Lawrence says, like that could be, I mean, that, that's episode one next year, isn't it? If, if Checo isn't driving at Red Bull at the end of the year and Ricardo's in, it doesn't matter what's happened in the championship. For me, that's the episode one I want to see. Cause, no doubt. Because again, we're talking about selfishness. Can it, Ricardo has that in him as well, like they all do. So as much as he's like that on camera and he's that you know that fun-loving guy, if if he sees an opportunity to get into that Red Bull, I'm sure he's going to take it, like any driver would. And suddenly you might see a different side to him. You might see a different side to other drivers as well. So yeah, always interesting to see like how that would all play out. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. We're twelve. We're talking about twelve months down the line already. I know. I feel like we're being pulled in all different directions. We're being taken back to the past. You guys are obviously getting ready for testing. We're obviously talking about the future, but I really enjoyed episodes one through five. Obviously you guys did too. Great analysis and breakdown. I love the stories of like what we're seeing obviously on the show and you guys being able to draw back to it and give us, you know, side stories from what you were experiencing in that moment, I think is just unbelievable insight. I know I love it and I hope our viewers and listeners love it too. So remember if you're watching on YouTube, like our video, leave us a comment. Don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. If you're listening, please hit us with a five-star review. Both of you, safe travels to Bahrain. We'll be talking to you soon. Cheers. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.